0: a state trooper runs up and attempts to yank me out of the senator's entourage. And I looked at him and I said, oh, because the black girl could not have been with Bernie, right, and I turn around to the senator, I say, this is what I'm always talking about, y'all.
1: Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about people of color changing the face of Washington. I'm Frank Ordonez and I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together
2: make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas and I cover Congress for McClatchy. Today we have Simone Sanders, former press secretary for Democratic presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders. She's parlayed her role as former Sanders press secretary into becoming one of the most visible anti-Trump pundits on TV and on the speaking tour. The
0: problem hear. is, look, I don't need Donald Trump to give me anything. He's I'm a 27-year-old black woman on CNN. So that's first and foremost. She's
1: that's- fascinating. All that she's doing is and as an older journalist, I also think, like, what what have I been doing with my life? As a seasoned journalist. Season. <laughs> thank you, thank you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but no, she she is and has been in perpetual motion and that's what she likes. It is clear that Simone
1: is likely to go places and that's why people are already talking to her about leadership positions, political positions and she's getting the attention that she is.
2: But first we had to talk about what HBO's Bill Mark called himself when talking to Nebraska Senator Bill Sass on live TV.
1: We'd love to have you work in the fields with us. <laughs> work in the fields? That's part of that. that's <laughs> Senator, I'm a house nigga. No, it's it's a joke.
0: I was in the airport, and I look on Twitter, and I'm watching the clips, and I'm like, hmm, this would be the time where I have to go on the next week. And uh, I shared the stage with former Congressman David Jolly, David Gregory, who's a huge Ice Cube fan, and then Ice Cube. And Ice Cube kind of came out and set the tone. And it's not cool, because when I hear my homie say it, it don't feel like venom. When I hear a white person say it, it feel like that knife stabbing me, even if they don't mean it. And then I got a chance to respond. What I told Bill Maher was, look, it's more than just a word. It's more than just a joke. You attempted to whitewash who was really enslaved in the house. You would have been the master, the slave owner. It was mostly black women who were enslaved in the house, who were beaten daily, day in and day out. They endured physical and mental abuse. And with all of these attempts to rewrite history, on the backdrop of all of these things that are happening in America, I just think it's really, really important that we take care with our words and that we use these moments as teachable moments. So I was excited that... I could be on the stage and share my perspective.
2: So you thought Cube handled it right?
1: I I think the people watching right now are are saying that point has been made. Not by me. Okay.
0: I thought Ice Cube was going to have a lot more to say, Uh, (laughs) but I did think that he he was very intentional about coming out and saying, we are going to talk about this before we talk about anything else. I think Bill Maher heard us, but the question is, was he listening?
1: Did you feel like he was? I mean, he was obviously very uncomfortable.
0: Oh, my goodness. I mean, wouldn't you be uncomfortable if you were being raked over the coals on national television over something that you said, which you clearly thought there was nothing wrong with you saying it in the moment? Because notice, the apology from Bill Maher did not come until the morning after when the backlash was so swift no one had anything to say until the internet literally went crazy so do I think he was apologetic absolutely was he listening it remains to be seen is it good to air it out like
1: that on the show?
0: Yes. I think we need to have more candid conversations. The problem is people get so tense when we talk about race, for example, is because we never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, it's usually in terms of, oh, someone has said something off color and now they're in fear of being called a racist. So... I think we have to air it, put it out there, have candid conversations to see where it goes from here. There were so many think pieces about what Ice Cube said. There were so many think pieces about Bill Maher and the N-word and like the history and comedy. And that's how we get to a true dialogue where we can really move the needle. We can't move the needle if we don't talk about it.
2: So let's talk about you a little bit. You are a Nebraska native.
0: Yes, Omaha. Me and Malcolm
2: X. What's it like growing up black in Nebraska?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, the city of Omaha is about 13% African-American. So it as the national average. And it was interesting. I always love to tell people I'm from Nebraska because I get in these heated political debates and they're like, you don't care about these flyover states, the Midwest? And I'm like, well, actually, I'm from Nebraska. I grew up in Nebraska. I was educated in Nebraska. I went to Creighton University. And I, I think that it is important to acknowledge that there are A lot of times we talk about black people or people of color. We talk about the South. And there are literally black people all over America. You know, my daddy is from Mound Bayou, Mississippi, but my mother is a native Omahaan. And I just think it's important that we recognize a black person from Nebraska or Kansas City may have a few different views on some things than a black person from Mississippi, for instance. We would all like for... Black people to stop being shot and killed in the streets all across America. There are some other nuanced things that we also may care about that's just a little bit different. Give me an example. Um, you know, I think I think Nebraska is more conservative. I come from a more conservative background. I grew up Baptist, but I went to Catholic school my whole life. So I view things through the lens of service and Catholicism because that's how I grew up. I went to a Jesuit Catholic University, so that colors the way I see things and the way I interact in the world as someone who who grew up in Florida and went to an HBCU thinks differently.
1: How do you think that kind of shaped your perspective i mean do you relate to kind of like that conservative specter or do you understand it more
0: I mean, I, I don't think anybody would call me a conservative. <laughs> that's why, I, that's why, I'm, that's why I'm, I kind of find it interesting. But I, I mean, I guess I do relate. These are folks that I, in 2014, I worked a governor's race in Nebraska. And Scott's Bluff, I don't even think there's any black people in this city. And I remember driving across the state multiple times with my candidate. And I would show up to places and people would ask if I was from Chicago. They could not fathom that there were like literally black people that lived in Nebraska. But when you think about things, when we talk about things such as like, the needs of farmers and ranchers. Like, I absolutely understand. I have literally been out on a farm. So I I definitely do understand that a lot of times when we talk about some of these issues, when you talk about quote-unquote urban issues, city issues, sometimes it leaves out concerns of folks in rural America.
2: Born and raised in conservative Nebraska. <laughs> You're a progressive.
0: I am. I'm a self-described progressive. So when
2: did you get political? What are, what are the seeds to Simone Sanders becoming the political force that she is today?
0: I have always been political. I w- used to be in an organization called Girls Incorporated. It's a nonprofit organization that services girls ages 6 through 18 years old in um, after school and summer programming. It's all across the country. And they had a program called She Votes. And She Votes was a program that introduced girls to the electoral process I learned about who my elected officials were and that kind of like set me on the path and so I had an opportunity to intern with the Girls Inc office here in DC um, when I was 18 didn't you do something at 16? I did. Oh, at 16. yeah. Oh, I guess that's political. Yeah. So at 16, I introduced uh, President Bill Clinton at a luncheon for Girls, Inc. And I like had to lobby my way to do that because people that know me think it's really funny that I literally get paid to speak on TV because when I was a kid, everybody said I talked too loud, too fast and too much. And that was not my forte. We appreciate that on
1: the radio <laughs> and, and podcasts, by the way. <laughs> So what did you what did you say?
0: Well, I told them I wanted to introduce President Clinton because this lunch and everybody comes. Barack Obama came like the year before that. Stepmaid Graham had been there like Desmond Tutu. Hillary Clinton has done the luncheon before. Chelsea Clinton, everybody. And I was like, I want to be the one that introduces Bill Clinton. So I wrote this speech and I had the opportunity to present it like a fundraising thing with some of the like the big wigs at Girls Inc. And I spoke well at the fundraising thing. So the next day they said, OK, you get to introduce Bill Clinton. So I wrote my own speech. I just went through his history and his bio. I talked about my desire at the time. I wanted to be a judge uh, and I wanted to go to law school. I have not gone to law school and I do not want to be a judge. And I think I did well because when Bill Clinton came up, he said, you know, Simone, you spoke so well. I kind of hate to follow you. Can you give um, us a couple lines uh, from, my, from my speech? I told them, I said, you know, and I'm here today, side note, I would like to attend law school one day, so for all of the law school officials in the room, I am available, so after that I did get to go and tour some uh, law schools in Nebraska. It was really, and I got an internship to this firm in Nebraska. The folks for the diversity scholarship said they remembered me from the Bill Clinton speech, and that's literally how I got it, so when I would go into the office and like be on the floor with the partners, they were like, this is the Bill Clinton girl, and I'm like, I need to do something else so that everybody doesn't keep referring to me as the Bill Clinton girl, and he, actually wrote about me in his book. But I'm on page 81. Check me out, he mentions me by name. So let's <laughs> let's
2: talk about when Sanders met Sanders. <laughs>
0: It's a movie, right? Oh, yeah. When Simone met Bernie.
2: What was your thinking signing on with the Sanders campaign?
0: So, common misconception is you know, Bernie had these quote unquote black issues, and they went out and found this black girl, and they just gave her this position. No, I have worked 15 different campaigns. I had never worked a presidential before, and I went on 27 interviews before I got the Bernie Sanders job. So, one day, Jeff Weaver, who was Bernie's campaign manager, calls my cell phone and is like, hey, I got your resume. We think you're great. You want to come in and chat? I chatted with Jeff, Uh, I chatted with the communications director. And then I literally didn't hear anything. And I'm like, I have now been on 29 interviews (laughs) and nobody has hired me. And then Netroots happened and I'm like, well maybe I didn't want to work there anyway. And if anyone remembers, Netroots was when Senator Sanders was first interrupted by activists from the Black Lives Matter movement. And the optics did not look good, it did not go well. Black lives of course matter. And I spent 50 years of my life fighting for civil rights and for dignity. But if you don't want me to be here, that's okay. No, sir, we want you to, no, we it's want okay, you to be here I, and address that and all outs, the other questions. I don't no, want
2: right. to outscreen
0: people. Um, no, no, and then maybe a week after not. that, I get a phone call, and then I'm in Bernie's office. We have an amazing conversation. We talked about roots. We talked about the economy, education. We talked about Nebraska. And he was like, I never knew there were. I was like, black people in Nebraska? He said, I was going to say Democrats. <laughs> 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 so we had a really great conversation. And by the end of the conversation, you know, he said, you know, I like you. I think we want you to come work here. And I was like, I think I want to work here. And Bernie asked me something that nobody else on those 29 interviews asked. He said, do you have an idea of what you'd like to do? And I said, absolutely. I want to be the national press secretary. I like to do cable television. I want to do radio. I want to be your on the record spokesperson. I want to have a hand in the messaging strategy. And Bernie just kind of looked and turned his head and he said, well, have you ever done cable television before? And I said, no. But I think I'd be very good at it. And he laughed and at Tuesday someone called and they were like, We'd like to bring you on and I said, What's my job title? And they were like, National press secretary And I said, Well, okay we can do this. So I thoroughly enjoyed my time at the Sanders campaign. There's still a lack of like, visible people of color at leadership levels. So I would go places and events, and I like, could not get in because people wouldn't believe that I was the press secretary. And I'm like, do you watch TV?
2: You had ID. Though. You had, I, had, like, the
0: I would ID. literally have ID, and I could literally not get in. And I would have to call folks to come down and get me.
2: And what did the senator say?
0: And Shocked. Shocked because and he said this to me before, you know, he said, you know, as a white man in America, he was like, namely from Vermont. uh, I do not know what it feels like to be actively discriminated against on a regular basis because of what I look like or because of my gender. I don't know what that feels like. That does not mean that I don't have a responsibility to, to speak up about it. And so I feel very comfortable when I encounter situations such as this speaking up about it. And I'm not about to let anybody disrespect me. Uh, But I am going to be professional. I am going to do my job, and I am going to speak up. And I've carried that into the work that I do uh, with CNN. I don't like to sit next to Rick Santorum because he put his hand in my face one day on national television, and we weren't having that. So we still have a long way to go, but I think we we have made some good gains. We just need to be vigilant and know that just because we had a black president, we do not now live in this post-racial America. And I think if anything we have learned over the last year, it is definitely that.
2: People tend to think... You know, if it's a progressive campaign, you know, kumbaya, we're all getting along. Uh, Not necessarily the case.
0: Oh, Not necessarily. I mean, look, I talk about intersectionality a lot. And all of these progressive movements, whether it's like progressive in politics or the women's rights movement or even the civil rights movement, they've not done intersectionality well. We just have to recognize that and own that. And so, yes, I, I wrote the communications plans for our regional like, press places. Like I would call up reporters. I would brief the senator. I would write on the plan and I would get places with the reporters and they'd want to talk to my press assistant. And I'm like, actually, I'm the press secretary. Thank you. Unfortunately, like racism, sexism, ageism. Aren't you like the youngest. I was the youngest presidential press secretary on record. I was twenty-five, and so I think ageism played a a role in it. Those things aren't going away tomorrow, and so because they aren't going away, we have to actively figure out a way to deal with them, to address them, but to also quote unquote keep it moving. And I think I had a crash course in that over the last
2: year and a half. And I see no gray hair.
0: No gray hairs. No, but I don't. I actually don't have hair, so. No. <laughs> When you hear an
2: elected official or a person running for office saying, I marched with Dr. Martin Luther King.
0: Well, you know, I think Bernie might have said that at one point or time. I don't think that necessarily resonates with younger folks, though. And to be frank, when I initially sat down with the senator, I was like, you know, young people don't really care that you march with Dr. King. And he said, oh. I was like, no, they don't don't really care about that. We care about what you've done now. And so I think you've done lots of great things now, and you should talk about those things. I do not think it resonates with some of the younger electorate, the millennials like myself, who are asking, what have you done for me lately?
2: Do they know who Martin Luther King is?
0: Yes, we know who Martin Luther King Jr. is. Just him. Yes, we do know, but we also know that the media has attempted to erase parts of who Dr. King was. Dr. King was not this meek and docile man that just believed we have to be super, super peaceful and change will come eventually. Dr. King was marching and organizing, not just for freedom for black people, but for economic freedom. And the march on Washington was a march for jobs and justice. Okay? Jobs and freedom. So, we don't talk enough about the Dr. King that was marching for freedom. The Dr. King that was organizing with the sanitation workers um, and the union workers who are black, white, Latino, all of the union workers to increase wages in their job situations. So we know about Dr. King. We're not here for folks who are saying we just need to be quiet and sit at the table and meet and it will come along. We are also here for the Dr. King, who was absolutely about some of this raucous civil disobedience, who stood up for um, the rights of people, the economic rights as well.
1: You know, Bernie's Jewish. I mean, did you ever feel that he should have embraced more, be more of the Jewish candidate? You seem not to
0: it, it I mean, seemed to be like a touchy, like, was it a touchy subject? It wasn't touchy for us. I mean, for anyone to say, well, perhaps you should have embraced more of, of a Jewish candidate is like a black person running and saying, well, you're just not black enough for me.
1: I guess I meant more like, you know, JFK being, you know, the first Catholic president.
0: I mean, it never really came up as an issue for us, like internally. I think the senator was really authentic and is really authentic about who he is and where he stands on a number of issues. I remember we did a community conversation in Harlem at the Apollo Theater and we had Harry Bell telephonte bernie and someone comes up and we do our question and answer and someone asked them about the zionist jews that have not treated black people well and we end the conversation because like that is absolutely offensive in so many frames but bernie handled it really well and he said yes you know i am a jewish american but we should not use offensive terms such as that but let's talk about the issues right here and we pivoted and we talked about the issues so i i, I actually don't think that there was any more quote unquote leaning in he maybe should have done on being a jewish candidate i actually might have thought of that as pandering and i think what people really liked about bernie is that he did not pander some people did not like that he did not pander but he was just authentic about who he was
2: so it sounds like this campaign was in a way for senator sanders uh, a, a journey into 21st century blackness i mean <laughs> no 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 i mean from from where he started from your meeting to the end of
0: this campaign?
2: I mean, did you see a change in him?
0: I always like to say... I always thought Bernie got it. He maybe didn't understand 110%, but he definitely got it. So I did see him um, engage in lots of conversations. We sat down with activists, actually, in almost every city that we went to. If there was, like, a Black Lives Matter chapter or if there were, like, African-American activists who were organizing, we sat down with them, usually after our rallies, and he had conversations with them. And I think that was very enriching for him, and it informed the rewrite of our racial justice platform. So if you look at the latest version of Bernie Sanders' racial justice, this platform, there is language in there about civil asset forfeiture, and that came specifically from speaking with young activists across the country, namely folks like Brittany Packnett and Doreen McKesson from Campaign Zero.
2: And you, you talk about this experience. I mean, what did you take away from doing this job?
0: Oh, my goodness. That... The American people are absolutely amazing. My first Bernie Sanders rally was August 7th. It was the weekend of the anniversary of the death of Michael Brown. And it was also the weekend where we had the largest crowds. We had 15,000, 20,000, 28,000 people over in like California, Portland, and Seattle. And it was amazing. I believe that people want someone to stand up for them, to speak up for them that embodies their values. They want someone that tells it like it is and that is just so genuine. The American people are resilient. I remember when we went to McDowell County, West Virginia, all the staff, we were like, Why are we being dragged to McDowell County, West Virginia? And we went to a food bank and we had a community conversation as we like to call them with the residents of this town in McDowell County and some of their elected officials. And they they talked about how they are literally poor. But they are actively working together to move the needle. And it was one of the most humbling experiences I have ever had. And at the end of the day, we were all so glad that we were dragged into the middle of West Virginia to meet some of the most resilient people in America. So, you know, America is going to be okay. We definitely elected Donald Trump and I'm not happy about that. Some folks did, we didn't. And black women definitely didn't do that.
1: Aside from the the black voters who were in those communities, but those rural communities mm-hmm. a lot of white people in those rural communities also. How do you get them to vote for again. a Democrat again?
0: right after the election folks were talking about, do we focus on um, quote-unquote identity politics or do we focus on the white rural rural voter? One, I think that's a false choice. Um, I think we can absolutely talk about the economy and working class people in a way that talks about all working class people. There are Latino working class people in America. There are black working class people, Native American, Asian American, and of course white working class people. So I think it's a false choice. I think we also have to realize, though, that the Democratic Party ain't won white people since they signed the Civil Rights Act, okay? And it was a Democrats that didn't even want to sign the Civil Rights Act in the first place if we really want to talk about history. America is browning. By 2032, only seven states in America will be majority white states. So I think the solution to the to Democrats quote unquote winning again is to get a platform and actually get out there and talk about the issues. And if you talk about the issues in a way that is authentic, if you talk about the economy, not just by saying these guys are really bad but this is my plan for you and your family, I don't think Democrats will have a problem winning white working class people black working class people or whoever but I do not believe the answer is to make a huge shift over to just change who the democratic party is going after and that now the rural white voter is our voter because honestly it's not
1: You raised some controversy when you said we don't need white people leading the Democratic Party. I think
0: 48 percent of the voting membership of the Democratic Party are people of color. And prior to us having a new chair, when the leadership would get together, because we we now do not have the presidency, it would be Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Chris Van Hollen of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, and Ben Ray Lujan of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Nancy is representing for the ladies. Chairman Lujan is representing for the Latino community. But the majority of the base of the Democratic Party is a big tent. It's a hodgepodge of people. That hodgepodge includes people of color. And I think it is really, really important that people of color see themselves in the party. And what better way to see themselves than in the chairmanship? Prior to Tom Perez, we hadn't had an elected chair of color since Ron Brown. And if no one else is going to speak up and say it, I'll say it because I'm not scared.
1: Why are other people scared?
0: I think some Democrats are afraid of being politically incorrect. And also because they really truly do believe that the rural white voter is the path back to victory for the Democratic Party. I do not believe that. I believe that we can talk to white people, black people, brown people, all shades of people authentically and turn out our base and we can win. I actually don't believe that like the the change that we all believe in is going to come through the Democratic Party over this next year, year and a half. I think it's going to come from the outside groups. And so you've got folks like the Indivisible Project, who are literally galvanizing, organizing people across the country. You've got people like Run For Something who are literally tapping young people on the shoulder, telling them they want them to run for something. You've got uh, folks like Color of Change, Move On. These are people who are putting pressure on the party and party officials, and I think that is how we are going to see change. I am not waiting on the DNC specifically to get it together because we can't afford to wait.
1: Your bench is not it's very not diverse. Dead. I mean, you got Bernie, you got Hillary, you got Joe Biden, you got Elizabeth Warren. How are you feeling about that? Because if they're running, it doesn't seem like they're going to be having the conversation that you're trying to have right now.
0: But this time prior to 08, no one knew Barack Obama was going to be Barack Obama, that he was going to be the candidate. Even when he said he was running for this thing, the Congressional Black Caucus didn't even back him. They all backed Hillary Clinton. And it wasn't until he won Iowa that it was a signal to the rest of the electorate that, okay, well, wait, maybe this black guy can win this thing. Maybe this guy is the Democratic Party's true candidate so i do not want to think about 2020 right now because i think we have to get through 2018 first 2017 actually people were saying we're really down in the dumps about these special elections and i think a better litmus test for where the party is and if we can win are the races in virginia and new jersey coming up in 2017 after this november we can better assess you know what we really have going on but i think we don't know who the presidential candidate is going to be right now. Uh, and I would hope that we have like 20 people who step up and say they want to run for president on the Democratic Party ticket because that's how it should be.
1: Who would you like to step up?
0: Um, How about this? I would like some younger folks to step up. I would like some some people, I would like some younger people to step up, maybe some younger people that don't necessarily have a huge national profile, but they have a proven track record of doing the work. And so that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see a really robust primary. I don't want to see it get dirty, but I do want to see it get really competitive.
2: You know, you have to be at least 35 to be president. Do you think there should be an age limit, a cap on how old you can be? No, seriously.
0: I'm no ageist here, so I don't necessarily think we should impose caps on who can run for president. But I do think that some of the seasoned leadership, to say, needs to be willing to move out of the way. I gave a, I talked to the YWCA um, like two weeks ago, and I gave their keynote for their luncheon. And before the luncheon, someone came up to me, and they were like, how do we get more younger people involved? We want to get them involved and so on this. I said, you know, a lady just came up to me and asked, how do we get more young people involved? Move. You need to move out of the way. And if the Democratic Party really wants to see younger people step up and take their place inside the party, they have to make space and make room for them. How do you do that? You put folks on the DNC's executive committee. You actively engage them in a surrogate program. You, You make real investments. Where is our leadership program? for young people, from the party's perspective. The RNC has one, where's the DNC's? Paul Ryan, Marco Rubio, they all came out of Republican National Committee Leadership Program. The party needs a pipeline program. I was very vocal about this in the DNC chairs race, and I'm still talking about it now because I ain't seen the pipeline program plan. What
1: about Nancy Pelosi? I-
0: like leader pelosi so you know what is it time for leader pelosi step down one could argue i think if someone wants to quote unquote take out nancy pelosi they have to put their money where their mouth is and nobody has done that she has been an extraordinary leader and she's elevated young people specifically young people of color her press secretary right now is an african-american young woman she's like 27 she's a good friend of mine it's the only african-american press secretary in leadership on the democratic side The press secretary before her was a Latino young man who is now her executive director of her political operation. He was the first Latino press secretary as democrats the this should be concerning abysmal and democrats if we really say we believe in like diversity and the big 10 and intersectionality uh, then i think we should reflect that in our hiring practices in who we put on television and who we are engaging with and where we spend our money so you're saying
2: you're saying democrats are behind the republicans in that matter
0: then yes oh absolutely in some in some veins, absolutely
2: If you get more minorities
1: in the leadership, will more minorities start showing up at the polls?
0: People who I know that didn't go out to vote, they said they didn't know what the Democratic Party stood for. They didn't know what Hillary Clinton's position was, except that she didn't like Donald Trump. And that did not galvanize them to vote. One man in Milwaukee, I remember in a focus group we did, excuse my language, but he said, I I lived in a hole eight years ago and I live in a hole now. He's like, and I don't even get a black president. So what is the point? We can't only just put up candidates of color and believe that Latinos, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and black people are going to come out to vote because the candidate looks like them. We have to put forth good policy. We have to actually tell people what we're going to do for them and then follow it up. And for th- that young millennial voter, they are watching to see if you have something to say.
1: Are they? Uh, are Democrats afraid to talk about those things? I,
0: mean, I just think folks are, are wondering, how do we talk about it?
1: Haven't, haven't <laughs> folks been wondering about how to talk about those things for a long
2: Look, time?
0: It sounds, it should be cut dry, right? It's not rocket science to me. But I think as a party, we have not been able to do that. So we got to get real creative. So
2: I just want to ask you, you talked about the need to have more people in the pipeline for Democrats. What about putting Simone Sanders in that pipeline? (laughs)
0: One day I would like to run for office Uh, right now. I'm one of the people that helps get other people elected what office I think I'd like to be a United States senator one day who doesn't but I also think local offices are really important So I've got good friends who just ran for mayor and got elected in some of these smaller towns across the country So it is really important the young people step up and put their name on the ballot Not just once but two three four times because that's the only way we'll make a change And one day I will be one of those young people
1: what office have you been approached about? Come on.
0: You can tell us. You know what? On District 2 in Nebraska, the congressional district, it was a Democratic seat for like four years. And then the Republican, Don Bacon, beat out Brad Ashford, who previously had that seat. So I was at a reception for Emily's list earlier this year and I was telling people I was from Nebraska and they were like, do you want to run for District 2? And I said, stop this madness, guys.
2: (laughs) Why does it matter as a young African-American woman that you do what you do?
0: Because representation matters. You know, I decided I wanted to get into communications because I would see politicians and people put out messages um, that did not speak to people that looked like me. And I think it's important for black women for latino women for black men for latino men for people of all shades and colors to be communications people to help craft the message because then we can make sure it's a message that appeals to all people so that is literally why i got engaged and involved and i'm glad that i am now on television because now there's some little girl sitting at home saying i can probably say it better than she can and i hope she steps up and decides to show me that
1: we know that you don't like donald trump oh no but (laughs) give me uh give me one redeemable quality Of uh, Donald Trump.
0: Oh, a redeemable quality. I am, you know... Donald Trump loves his children.
2: That sounds familiar. Where'd that kind of... Oh, the debate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the one thing we could all pull out. Look, I'm sure Donald Trump is a really nice man. I actually, and I think I've said this on television before, I don't think he's racist. I think he has trafficked in racism and bigotry, though, but I don't think he's a racist. And I don't actually think he's a a horrible person. Unfortunately, his policies and the things that have come out of his mouth have proven otherwise to the rest of us. And so I would love for Donald Trump to prove me wrong.
2: So what does success for African-Americans look like? like in the age of Trump.
0: Ooh, success for African-Americans in the age of Trump. Look, I think, people always talk about black America. I think black America needs to get an agenda together. So if we're talking about the economy, if we're talking about criminal justice reform, if we're talking about climate change, like what is the agenda? So I think success really depends on the agenda. Under a Reagan administration with a Republican Congress, we got the King holiday and we ended apartheid in South Africa. So if it can happen under Reagan and a Republican Congress, Lord knows what could happen under a Donald Trump administration and a Republican. In Congress.
2: Thanks again to Simone Sanders for being here, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and hear more stories at McClatchyDC.com slash MM.
1: The show is produced and edited by Jordan Marie Smith and Davin
2: Coburn, and thanks to executive producer Ayanna Morali. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority.